right, everybody, welcome to the Man Patriot Podcast. My name is Dumo Denga. And as always, I have Nzuzo Kati with me, the co-host. How are you doing, Nzuzo? I'm good, man. I'm good. Uh, what's up to Dumo and El- as well as the listeners, subscribers, uh, everyone that shared, you know, also people that follow us on social media. What's up to everyone else? I hope you're enjoying your Freedom Day, even though under lockdown. That's that's ironic, but <laughs> nonetheless, um, I hope that you guys enjoying your day. Uh, today we have a special guest, uh, but unfortunately also we are, we short on staff. So uh, besides, um, with we only having Piaki in today. But anyway, um, Piaki, what's up, man? Are you good? Good, I'm good, man. Um, yeah, I've been, I've, I've not been as um, pissed off about this lockdown as I was previously. Right now, I'm just like, yeah, I've accepted that people are going to do what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's 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 annoying. That's the annoying thing about it. everything. Everything has died down. Initially, everyone was pissed, and now everyone's just waiting to go back to work or whatever they need to do to make this money. But nonetheless, we also have a special guest on the show, someone that um, our listeners may may know from social media as well as um as well as a policy maker or a policy advisor. Or uh, I think you'll clear that up. But nonetheless, we have Russell and Betty on the show. How are you doing, Russell? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm great. Sorry. Thanks, uh, thanks, Zuzo. Uh, sorry for the delay there on my voice. Uh, good to be here, Dumo. Thanks for having me. Mpiaki, great good to job. see you. Good, good to be here, guys. Really looking forward to to a fun, uh, fun discussion. Perfect, perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, um, just for a reminder to the listeners and subscribers, you guys can also um, become a citizen on Patreon. Um, it's only four dollars, if I'm not mistaken, Dubo. Or oh, you cut it yeah. down for this. Just no, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's still at four dollars, but yeah, yeah. But, but now you know the current exchange rates. Hey, people are gonna be like, ah, yeah, not so much. So we told them to give us. Yeah, <laughs> whatever they can. Yeah, whatever they can give us. Uh, but thank you to the citizens that are already um, donating money, and uh, yeah, we can get right into it. So um, I think let's start with obviously you know what has obviously been on everyone's lips for the past five weeks. And Russell and his um, company as well has also been some of the some of the real uh, big noises or big voices in this um, in, in the debate according to you know relaxing and easing the lockdown as well as making people go back according to their own rules and regulations and own protocols rather than actually you know uh, publishing regulations and all that stuff that the government loves to do rather than take into account citizens' um, comments and um, um, own personal experiences. So, um, in, in general, Russell, what do you think of this lockdown and what's, what's really the issue with this lockdown, if you have any? Yeah, thanks so much, man. Um, look, I think that the the lockdown as we've had it now for nearly, well, we've had it for a month, one, one week, a little bit less than a week to go, it'll be five weeks, I think has been a, a catastrophically bad idea. I think it's a, it's one of the worst policy ideas I've ever lived through and ever experienced. Um, I think that it is causing immense pain and suffering, uh, first and foremost amongst the poorest South Africans um, and of, and the people with the least resources and savings. But we're going to see that pain starting to more and more drift higher, drift through the, the 
the ranks, if you like, of the of the lower middle classes and then the middle classes and then the upper middle classes as people realize that they are losing their their jobs, um, losing their livelihoods, um, and so on. So I think the lockdown up until now has been really, really poor. Um, and then going forward, which we can get into, uh, I, I think that the ideas that have been put forward for ending the lockdown also, to me, look really, really destructive and don't really fix the very, very damaging economic uh, situation that we face um, at the moment. So I'm really concerned about the lockdown going forward. So, so just on that, the ideas that have been put forward to end the lockdown, like and in maybe you could touch on some of them and how they exactly they are destructive. Yeah, thanks, Abiyaki. So, so I think the the idea that's been put put forward is the idea of a risk based approach. Okay. Now, what's interesting about that is that that's the same words that we've used in in what we've recommended. Um, but the two risk-based approaches that are being put forward here are very, very different. Um, so I think that the first, the first one to, to talk about is what the government are proposing. Uh, the, the government is proposing a sector-based uh, risk strategy, a sector risk strategy. And what that basically does is it tries to put every company in, inside a sector a particular sector like manufacturing or retail or, uh, you know, chemical sector or, or, you know, just various different sectors of, of production. Um, and then it tries to say, well, that sector has a particular kind of risk and then we're going to decide um, what risk that sector has and therefore what every company within that sector has. And then we're going to grade these risk levels and then we're going to let people come back uh, when they can, and um, I think that th there's 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 at least three problems with this, guys. Um, the the first problem is that companies don't fit neatly into sectors. Yeah. Companies yeah. Com companies are very very uh, diverse. Companies are very very different, and companies within sectors um, uh, are, all, are also very very different. So in the first instance, a company. So the first problem is that a company doesn't neatly fit into a sector. Um, companies do do varying things that can be diversified, that can be highly specialized. Um, secondly, um, companies within a so-called sector can look very, very different from one another. Am I coming through okay, Dumo? Yes, yeah. yes, you're coming okay, through. Great. Okay, great. Cool, we can man. hear you. Great stuff. So, so the the companies within a sector, so-called, can look very, very different. So, someone could be in the steel making sector, but he could be a single operator operating out of his garage making making steel products, um, versus a company that employs say six hundred people in a factory. Okay, the, the, those two companies obviously have very, very different risks. So, so the idea. The first flaw is that you can put a company into a sector. That's false. The second flaw is that companies within a sector have the same risk. That's definitely false. And the third problem with it is that 
when you allow some sectors to operate but not others, you don't actually fix the economy. You still have broken linkages between companies in, in the same way that you do between the essentials versus non-essentials. Mm-hmm. See, that's also a problem because essential, so-called essential businesses rely on so-called non-essential businesses, not only for their supply but also for their demand, also for selling. So the idea that you can just split the economy into these buckets of of sectors or of essential versus non-essential, real life economy doesn't work like that. Everyone is connected. Everyone exists. And if you exist, you are essential. <laughs> You're essential to the person running the business. You know That business is essential to its owner. That's what gives him his livelihood. Um, it also gives him the value in the marketplace that he uses to go and buy um, so-called essential services. So all we're doing is we're swapping out essential, non-essential for a sector-based approach, which faces exactly the same problem. I might be a, a sector that can operate in level four, but my suppliers might be level three or level two or level one yeah, um, yeah. companies, right? And the people who buy my products might be level three or level two or level one. So you still have these broken linkages in the economy. Final, final point on the government's plan, guys. Um, over this very, very complex situation, they want to now add these five levels of risk alert. They want to put, they want to put us in a level five or a level four or a level three. Then they want to be able to dial that down or up depending on the so-called, you know, the, the, the coronavirus risk. Okay. Which they are supposed to be able to understand like in real time, which they definitely don't. Okay. They don't have the, they don't have anywhere near enough data um, and, and good enough data quality to be able to make that judgment, okay? Yeah. Um, secondly, um, to, to, to think that you can dial these, these risks up and down like you do with, say, load shedding with, with ESCOM and expect businesses to be able to actually make proper plans for investment, for hiring, um, for for operations is just dreamland, all right? Businesses need a medium to long-term horizon to make their plans. Yeah. Um, the, so so that's, that's a massive problem. And then the final thing that they're talking about doing is, is, is making this applicable, these five levels applicable at a provincial and then at a district level, okay? So what that means is that a business, now, now most South Africans don't even know where the district boundaries are, right? Now, that means that you can be operating a business in one district, and then if you drive over into the next district to do business there, then you're breaking the law. Yeah. So, so what you're creating is complete bureaucratic uncertainty, a total bureaucratic nightmare. And it's not, it's not an overstatement, guys, to say that what we're seeing in this, in this policy is, is basically like full-tilt socialism. Yeah. <laughs> That's no, I, I would agree with you. And doesn't it also show, like, you know, the problem with political incrementalism, this idea that you can sort of uh, make government more and more um, uh, more liberal uh, through incremental steps. And so we had a hard lockdown, and I, I suppose from an opposition point of view, coming up with this risk-based approach was a better option. Piaki, that is such a brilliant observation. And I'll tell you exactly why it's a great observation, because... What you see is there's a lot of consultants out there and there's a lot of people who are trying to be very polite to the government, okay? Because they think that if they if they are impolite to the government, that um, the government's just not going to listen to them. Now, the problem with that, 
right, is that you give the government an incremental improvement proposal. And yeah. I've, I've seen some of these, these source documents that the government has used in this policy. And these guys are talking about sector risk and they're talking about um, all these ideas that sound clever and they sound like a better approach than the full lockdown. And the truth is that they are, they are a little bit better than the full lockdown. The full lockdown is a total disaster. Okay. But, but what we're getting in these, in these next stages is hardly any better. And the thing is, is that when you propose supposedly sensible kind of incremental improvements to government, those proposals, they can even have quite a liberal um, uh, intellectual sort of backbone in them. I've seen some proposals that, are, that the government is using that are actually quite smart and they actually understand the need for like a free market sort of approach here. But the problem is when you pull those things into the government, the government will spit it out statist. The government will spit it out bureaucratic and it will spit it out dirigiste. And, and that's exactly what we've got here. We've, the guys who have tried the incremental approach are just getting back from government like, like a socialist style policy. And that's why my view would be that you take a much more hardline approach we need to be drumming up public opposition against mm -hmm. what is a, a completely damaging policy. And we need to be saying to the government, this is unacceptable. This is unacceptably bad. And this is unworkable. And we need to start putting pressure through all kinds of media, through podcasts, through, through, through uh, opinion pieces in newspapers, through, through blogs, through news items, you know, whatever it might be, social media. And, and I think this is absolutely critical. So um, great point from Mpiyaki. And then, and then if you guys, I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys for more questions, but then I'm happy to explain um, our version of a risk-based approach. Yeah. I, I think that's a good, um, that's a yeah. I just want to say something quickly um, uh, with regards, before you explain the, your version of the risk-based approach. Um, I think your points um, go back to... Uh, what um, I think what Hayek and von Mises were saying a long time ago, in the 1930s, if I'm not mistaken. And they were saying that governments just do not understand the complexities of economies to really centrally plan it. And, you know, you mentioned that um, now that there is a, uh, an approach that the government is using, a sectoral, what, a sectorial approach and, or, an, or industrial approach or, what, or industry type, they can't just, you can't just categorize businesses like that because of the special linkages and relationships that they have with other businesses. And because they don't know that, I mean, do you honestly think that, um, that the government should have any lockdown whatsoever? So, um, Dumo, firstly, I think that that's a, a fantastic observation regarding uh, Mises and Hayek. Um, Hayek's famous um, Nobel Prize speech in 1974 was titled The Pretense of Knowledge. And his whole, the whole point of the speech was, was basically to, to say, and I mean, there's a famous quote of his that I, um, I'll just sort of uh, paraphrase, which is to say that it's the, it's the curious task of economics to show men how little they know about what they imagine they can design. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in other words, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the understanding of economic complexity that actually gives, should give us a humility when it comes to policy. 
it should give us a, a tremendous humility when it when it comes to us thinking that we know how to plan things. And so and so to your point, um, the idea that that you can just uh, put you know create sectors and, and 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 decide which sectors companies belong to. And then, and then, you know, assume that you can understand the risk of the virus, and then assume that you can grade these sectors by various risk levels of the virus, and then, you know, it, it, the, the absurdity just compounds in on itself um, to the point where, as I say, you have full tilt central planning. This is what mm-hmm. socialism looks like, guys. This is why socialist countries are a total disaster, mm-hmm. and this is also why. Um, when when people say things like "Oh, look, Sweden um, is a socialist country, and look how successful it is," I promise you now, Sweden is not a socialist country. Of course, it has elements of socialism. It has elements of statism. Every economy does. Mm-hmm. But those when 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 you've lived through real socialism, when you've lived through real state control over the economy, then you know. And and amazingly. We are getting a taste of that in, in, in what we're seeing here. So um, your final question there was, do we need any lockdowns? And my view is, is absolutely not. Absolutely not. What we need is first and foremost to understand that risk management is, is something that is done at an individual, at a company, and at a community level. It is not something that can be done by a state and certainly not effectively. There might be certain things that need to be aggregated up to a, to a governmental level, but the government does not have the knowledge, as per Hayek, it does not have the knowledge to know how to manage this risk for every South African. The risk that a farmer in the Karoo um, faces versus the risk that a, um, a street trader in, in, say, Soweto faces, the, these are completely different worlds, and they require... Um, decentralized risk management. They require different approaches. Um, so, so I'll quickly just say, so our, our risk-based approach is to say you don't, you can never put this into a sector-based model. You can never put this into anything like that. And you can never determine um, the exact risk of the virus um, at a central level. What you've got to do is you've got to um, say to yourselves, based on good data, what are the, the kinds of ways of of producing and and doing business that we might think are higher risk for the virus. The obvious, there's two obvious things. High density of people, right? Lots of people like in one small space and, um, and old and sick people being involved. Okay, so the way to manage risk of coronavirus is to make sure that very old, very sick people are out of harm's way, um, and that, and that in the in the conducting of of business and of production and of providing your services, that for a while, you don't overcrowd. So you don't overcrowd, and you don't have you don't expose very old people to to high risk. Mm-hmm. Now. Um, Within that, you, I think you can have two risk levels, not five. You can have two risk levels, and, and it's simply risk on and risk off. And if the risk is on, then the, then the regulations apply, and those regulations simply state something like um, the number of, of people that, that you know, could, could be involved in a, in a particular process, 
um, and uh, the age limits that you might have. So, for example, airlines could still fly under risk-on, um, but they might not be able to have uh, people flying for, for a time over the age of, say, 70. That, you know, that might be a stipulation. Now, it's still essentially a kind of central planning stipulation, but I, I believe that it is the kind of approach that is way, way simpler. And then basically, every business in South Africa can open and they can operate according to a few simple health rules, a few simple health rules, and then every business can operate. And then your, your next risk level is risk off, which is just a which is just saying the virus risk has passed and there's no more need to take these extraordinary risks. Older people can fly again. Um, we can we can have normal production processes and so on. So this takes away all the crazy complexity um, that, that the government is trying to put on us and it makes it much simpler. Okay. Yeah. If, for example, sorry, okay, okay. Uh, do you I just want to ask Russell for a bit. If let's take into account the okay, Piaki, you go, you go. No, I was just going to comment that all the arbitrariness goes out of the uh, regulations because you just have two modes and everyone knows exactly what's involved in both in both states: risk, risk on, and risk off. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I also wanted to ask Russell if. For for example, let's take it to example. Um, uh, obviously, you and Tumo spoke about Hayek and Mrs. and how uh, an economy is very complex. So let's take case study, and that case study is obviously South Africa, in which you have a dilapidated or dysfunctional uh, state health system, in which millions of South Africans depend on, and also you have a million South Africans that depend on um, transport. You know. Um, public transport as well and that obviously forces them to congregate into large crowds there's also a lot of people that use in different in townships you also have uh, areas in which um, there's only one or two malls or shopping centers in which you can go get food from so that obviously forces them to congregate so having taken that into account and with the complex system that the economy is wouldn't um maybe you can correct me but wouldn't it be better if there was a lockdown so that you can minimize the amount of people that are going to need a uh health um health uh due to the coronavirus so you take into account the fact that um due to the fact that our dysfunctional state health system cannot take in an overcrowded amount of uh a, a large amount of people into the hospital now don't you need to stop the amount of economic activity not necessarily to zero, but like to a certain uh, extent so that you can minimize the amount of people that get affected and minimize the amount of people that need state hospital and minimize also the amount of pressure and um, um, pressure that the healthcare system will take if mm. we just have a laissez-faire uh, um, economic system like there's nothing happening. And I know a lot of people talk about Sweden as well as they didn't take a decision to lock down and it's just going as it is and essentially they are going they but uh, they, they they're just living as if nothing there there's nothing there but you know with south africa the type of system that it is the type of country that it is the type of people that is the diverse people you know the different classes of people different wage gaps different wage uh, 
all that stuff, it, wouldn't yeah. you have said maybe a lockdown in certain areas would, or maybe put a lockdown in certain districts, municipalities, such things like that. So you can just elaborate. Yeah. So, so what you what you uh, talking about there, of course, is the main argument. It's the flat curve. It's the argument of what I call the flat curve society. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's the it's the argument that if you delay the the, uh, the the virus spread, you can get your healthcare system ready. You can get your healthcare system ready for the eventual increase in um, in in, in uh, coronavirus patients. So look, let's be realistic. I think the first thing to say there is that the South African healthcare system was never ready for anything and um, isn't going to be ready. When I say was never ready for anything, I mean is already stretched to full capacity, um, the, the public healthcare system. And these few weeks is very unlikely to increase capacity uh, meaningfully and very substantially. Um, but secondly, I think a much, much more, much more importantly, is that if the problem is healthcare capacity, then you, then that's what you deal with. You increase healthcare capacity, right? If that's what you feel that needs to be done, then you spend a few billion rand. I mean, imagine what five billion rand that we're now spending on the army to police lockdown. Imagine what that could have done. Um, in terms of hospital capacity, deployed quickly and efficiently. Uh, you, you get maybe some private sector companies, maybe Discovery Health could uh, could have played a very important logistical role there. Some of the private sector hospitals could have lent um, their expertise and their resources. You, you, you create some government budget and you create, you actually create rapidly um, additional hospital and healthcare capacity. And, and, and shutting down the economy is the very last thing you want to do when you're trying to create extra capacity like that because you actually need more resources. You need wealth to be, to be created. Um, and you need the economy firing on, on all the cylinders it can so that you can fund this healthcare response. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's an important thing. The, second, the, the third thing to say um, is that what you just said um, well, what the argument that you've uh, that you've relayed to me from from the, the people who talk about flattening the curve um, supposes that people don't know how to manage their own risks, and it supposes that households, companies, and communities don't know how to manage their own risks. Now, we know, for example, that when it comes to healthcare, not every hospital will be um, overloaded. Um, we know that from, from international experience already, and we certainly know that in the South African context, different hospitals have different uh, risks and capacities depending on where they are situated and the population they serve. Now, it seems to me perfectly feasible that a community of people could be given the information that, look, if this virus spreads wildly through your community, your local hospitals are going to be unable to um, to treat you effectively. Therefore, think about how you interact with people. Think about um, how you manage your personal risks. Those people can then take that information and they can weigh that information up against um, their other risks in their life, the risk of losing a job, the risk of needing to earn income and put food on the table. 
um, the risk of crime if they maybe they walk to work in the early hours of the morning and um, and they, they get they're at risk of being mugged or, or so you know people have to take all these risks risks into account um, to make their own personalized best best choices and I think when you start talking about national lockdowns and flattening the curve and all these sorts of things, um, you basically ride roughshod over that that Hayekian principle of decentralization and of actually respecting people's not only their liberty but their own intelligence. You you start respecting people's intelligence when you allow them when you decentralize your risk making um, your, your risk making decisions. Um, and then I guess finally it's to say that the whole idea of flattening the curve may be um, you know it's got its own problematic uh, uh, dimensions from a sort of scientific perspective. It's not even a proven it's not even really been proven that it's that it's that it's working. Um, and I guess finally to say that you've got to weigh all this against the cost um, of lockdown itself, right? So even if you if you concede that we have given our hospitals time to build capacity and that they did build capacity, you know, and, and, and all those things, the, the, the cost of doing that is now um, millions of people out of work, um, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of people um, more destitute than they were before, people losing businesses, laying off staff, and all the health risks and the mortality risks that come with poverty, um, and this is going to be with us for a number of years. So for me, lockdown was ill-advised, ill-thought-out, um, and I, I don't think in the final analysis that um, it's it's really worked, and it's certainly not been worth the cost, in my view. I think that we have incurred an immense cost for something with very, very uncertain benefits. I, the, the, the phrase I keep using is we've incurred certain costs for uncertain benefits, um, and I think uh, I think that's a, a huge problem uh, in in respect of lockdown. Okay, now I think that's uh, I think that's about sums it up. And where can people get your risk based approach? Uh, a link to that or something. Yeah, thanks, Mpiaki. So on our on our website, uh, which is etmmacro.com, etmmacro.com. As you go onto our front page, you'll see a COVID-19 button. You click that button and there's an easy-to-download one-page PDF. So this is, this is beautiful for reading. This is one page. Um, this doesn't mean that the one-pager answers all the problems and answers every question and is, is, is um, solving the entire problem by itself. The one-page is to give a framework for how we should be thinking about um, coming out of lockdown. It's to give a framework for how we think clearly about economic complexity and how we should manage that complexity. Now, just one final comment on that is that we talk about sort of um, putting in, uh, you could put in some sort of health regulations or health risk rules or regulations. Now, obviously, given that, the government could use that still to be tyrannical and to still be socialist, right? Because what they could say is, okay, we'll listen to Russell's proposal, and we'll, but our health risk um, rules are going to be like the worst, most onerous, most draconian rules you've ever heard, right? Like, like every morning you have to give every employee a half an hour health check, you know, let's say. <laughs> 
Like no one would do that, right? No, that would be intolerable for for anyone. Another rule could be that that you only allowed, I don't know, one person per hundred square meters or, or per thousand square meters or something ridiculous, you know. Um, so they could obviously use that to still be uh, uh, tyrannical and and therefore still shut out a whole bunch of businesses. So the second phase to this proposal is really smart risk proposals, but very, very simple and easy to comply with. Um, no need for bureaucracy, no need for, for like uh, requiring companies to do things that are totally, that they're totally unable to do. My sense is that the, the simplest way to start this is to, is to know that the data is showing us that the most at risk are, are old people um, with, with very, very serious um, existing conditions. Um, some younger people, say in, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, who have very, very serious um, pre-existing conditions may be at some risk. The, the, the global data that's coming out is showing us that this risk is low. It's almost zero. It's practically zero for people under the age of 30. And it's virtually, it almost is exactly zero for, for young children. Um, and so we have the ability to open schools. We have the ability to um, to open many things. But we have to have targeted risk strategies of helping um, old people stay out of harm's way. Um most old people, by the way, we must just also say, who get this disease, who get this virus, will recover. By an overwhelming majority will recover. In fact, many, most of them won't even feel that they have any serious symptoms. So even old people can, can get coronavirus and they'll, they'll generally be okay. It's the very old and the very sick that we, that we know that we have to worry about. So as I say, there, there's, you know, most production processes, guys, um, don't include very, very old and very, very sick people. <laughs> um, you, you could have a situation potentially where, where like a, a supermarket like Spa says, right, people over the age of 70 um, or, or over, even over the age of 75, 80, we give them one hour a day where they can come in um, or we give them like three hours on a, on a Sunday where they can come in and, and shop you know, all by themselves if they need to. Or we can run delivery services for those old people. Um, there's all sorts of ways that companies can now innovate around around a very simple risk profile, which allows everyone, therefore, to operate. And if you happen to run an airline, for example, um, the, the 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 rule might be you're unfortunately not allowed to to let people over a certain age travel for uh, while we're on the risk on. Um, uh, strategy while we're on the risk on policy and that's not nice for 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 old people who need to travel um, but uh, that that's that's the way it is and their families might be able to drive them or drive to see them or you know maybe there's other ways that this can work and obviously interprovincial travel absolutely needs to be allowed it's ridiculous to expect everyone to stay in one place uh, when we have a, a, a real-life society to, to run and to, and to operate. So, so I don't want to go on for too long. Sorry I'm talking for so long, guys, but I think, I th I think this is, this is kind of how we've got to be thinking about this. No, I think it's very valuable. Those are very valuable insights. But I, I wanted to also, since you are an economist here as well, and we have you here, so I wanted to go into the, some of the economic issues as well, because that's your, that's, that's your main job at CTM Macro, is you act as an economist, CTM Macro advisors. Yeah. And um, 
and your sort of uh, like the, the, some of the work that you've uh, uh, done is is around money and currency and all of these uh, these huge complicated subjects which which very few people understand well. And maybe could you maybe we could just start by you know sort of uh, laying out what is money and how it uh, arises arises in the economy as a sort of a, a way to start talking about the South African Reserve Bank and some of their recent yeah. Yeah, you know, it's such a it's such a great question. It's a, it's a question I could spend a very long time talking about, and I'm someone who can talk a lot, so I'm going to try not. I'm going to try be very very. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try be very very succinct. Um, money is something that arises um, out of um, a market based on exchange, and it's the thing that that people want to use to to as a store of value, as as a, a unit of account, and most importantly, as a medium of exchange. Yeah. It's, the, it's the thing that we price everything else in. Um, so we don't say that a banana costs the same as um, two nachis. <laughs> um, we don't say an avo costs the same as half a toothbrush. You know, we... Um, what we say is that a banana costs four rand, and and a, and a nachi costs you know eight rand or whatever, um, and and so we we use a unit that we can all understand, and in fact, what Mises um, showed, Ludwig von Mises, the economist showed was that it's it's the ability to to have money and to have a calculation mechanism that we call money. That actually allows us to have a modern economy and a modern society. It's the ability to, to, to have a calculation mechanism that allows us to make rational decisions in a very, very complex society. So the reason why money arises is because we want, it's because society requires a mechanism to help it perform very complex tasks and complex calculations. So, Mpiaki, if you and I were stuck on an island somewhere in the ocean together, and it was just you and me on that island, and it was a nice tropical island, there were coconuts, and then maybe there were some animals, and there were some you know, birds and bananas and all, a whole bunch of things. Um, you and I are stuck on that island. Um, we're good friends. We don't really need money in that, in that system. Economic principles still apply. But, but you and I don't really need money because we can coordinate very, very easily amongst ourselves. It's just the two of us. So we wake up and we decide, we're friends, we decide, right, Mpiaki, you're much better at catching fish. Um, I, Russell, am much better at, I don't know, uh, getting coconuts or, or, I don't know, killing you know, pheasants on the ground for, for bird meat. <laughs> And Piaki, you're better at fishing. You do that. At the end of the day, we'll bring it. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean that, that we'll have no conflict. We might have conflict because um, you might be working harder than me. I might be working harder than you. Um, and, we, and that could give rise to, to arguments and all these sorts of things. But basically, we don't need a mechanism, a complex mechanism of calculation. We know our needs. We know the resources we want. And we go and get them. The minute you start scaling up society, you need money. So um, the last point I'll make on this is that it turns out historically that the kinds of things that we consider um, good money, in other words, things that 
allow us to exchange with each other um, happen to be only very few things. And they happen to, to have a very certain set of characteristics. Yeah. Um, for example, the things that you use as money, they must all be the same as, as each other, right? Yeah. If you use like seashells as money, I mean, there's ugly seashells, there's beautiful seashells, there's ones that are broken, there's ones that are, are whole. Um, what, what, you know, what's, the, what's the value um, of all these different things? So it must be uniform. Um, it must be divisible. You know, if I can't divide a 100 rand note in some way, then I, it's not really useful money, right? Because some things are only five rand. So I don't want to have to buy 20 of them every time I go shopping. So, so um, money has to be divisible. It has to be durable in some form. Now, of course, in modern terms, Durable money is is can be digital money, right? It can be it can be money in a bank account. Your, your, your the digits in your bank account are are not um, subject to decay. They are infinitely durable, um, in, in a sense. But of course, they are backed up by servers. They're backed up by real um, server infrastructure um, and and database infrastructure that is physical and that can decay, right? So so that's interesting. Um, anyway, so you can go through a whole bunch of these these specific characteristics of money, and what you get to is that historically, um, the money that ticked all those boxes um, best was gold, and that's why gold was was part of the monetary system for so long. There were other kinds like silver um, that was less impressive as money potentially. In the modern era. Of course, we don't have gold anymore as, as an official kind of money. We've got, um, well, other kinds of money, paper currency, fiat currency, digital currency in, in computers and bank accounts. And then, of course, in the last 10 years, cryptocurrency, which is very, very interesting. And it ticks all those boxes. It ticks a lot of those boxes of what makes a good money. It's durable because it's online. It's divisible. Um, it's uniform. Um, it's... it's uh, you know, it's it's a it's a unit of account. It's got all these all these good characteristics of of money, but the yeah. one thing it doesn't have is that it's not accepted as money widely, and that's really the final puzzle piece for anything that wants to be currency and money. Yeah. The final puzzle piece is that people have to be willing to accept it. People have to be willing to trade it. So Bitcoin is potentially a very good money. Um, it's what we might call a nascent money, but right now you cannot get wide acceptance. Um, and when I say wide, I'm talking like the majority of society won't accept Bitcoin um, as a monetary transaction. And so, and the, and the same, quite honestly, is true of gold. Um, and so, even though there's so many problems with our current fiat currencies like the rand and the dollar and so on, unfortunately, they are still the things that are most um, money-like in the world at the moment because they are so widely accepted. So okay. that's that's my overall take, which probably did go on a bit too long, but I hope that kind of sums it up. That's, that's, I think that's very, that's very good. I think it sort of gives a good, like a good proper grounding for someone to go on and do more research for themselves. And uh, I, I, my, I, I wanted to move on from there and talk about the rent specifically and how it's, it's created and what is this thing called legal tender? I mean, it's a, 
you know, just like so the different ways the rent is created, like, you know, whether yeah. by the reserve bank and other banks or like all those ways. And then what is legal tender? I, I don't know. I, I know maybe I'm, I'm asking a lot of questions, but no, I know no, no, that's very so, so, so le- legal tender is the cornerstone of, of the, of the current governmental system of money. Um, because legal tender, legal tender doesn't it doesn't just say that you have to pay in a certain kind of money. It actually says that you have to accept payment in a certain kind of money. So it's it's um it's it's arguably even more of a of a sort of state imposed uh, rule. Because it says that if if someone owes you money, you have to accept the, that money in payment. So now it's interesting. So the rand is legal tender in every country. They make their own home currency legal tender, and and it stops you from actually uh, legally transacting in in other currencies. So so it's actually illegal to to transact. Um, in Bitcoin in South Africa, it's illegal to transact in dollars and euros for goods and services. Um, now, of course, many people might still do that. Um, I'm sure some of you have paid someone in Bitcoin or, or, or in Ethereum, um, and some of you might even have paid someone in dollars before. Uh, you're obviously, uh, strictly speaking, breaking the law. Um, interestingly, though, guys, th- uh, there is another legal tender in South Africa, which is... Um, Kruger Rands, <laughs> gold coins. Um, gold coins are actually legal tender. Now, they could end that legal tender status if they wanted to. Um, but they might keep it because the government and the central bank owns a lot of gold coins, a lot of Kruger Rands. It owns the Rand refinery, which is the refinery that mints uh, Kruger Rands. And um, it may f- desire one day to use gold as payment. Um, in, in the South African system. So so they might actually keep gold as legal tender. So officially, Kruger Rands are also currency in South Africa. Yes. Um, and that's, and that's, that's very interesting. I just saw it because yeah. uh, the, South Africa is one of the very few countries where the, uh, the gold coin that is legal tender is, is, is legal tender by mass rather than having a denominated value. So Correct. it doesn't have, there's no one rand or 50 rands on the, on the gold Kruger Rand. Exactly. Yeah. So the Kruger Rand is, is legal tender, and um, not many people know that. And that's a good clue as to as to the fact that gold is is a form of money and is a form of currency and has traded as such in the past, and is still recognised as such, not only by the South African government and central bank, but but globally. Um, although you know, I don't know which countries consider gold legal tender. I think there's very few. So that you you know, South Africa, as you say, in Biaki, South Africa might be the only country that has that um but central banks around the world buy gold and own gold as part of their national reserves so gold is still considered um, a very very important financial instrument an important source of liquidity and of money and so um so i think that's really interesting so in south africa we have the rand the rand is obviously it exists in a few forms, and people need to understand three forms of, of RAND. There's three kinds of currency that are worth knowing about. The first kind is the kind that you and I never see and never will see, 
um, it's it's never uh, manifested in our bank accounts, and it's something that we can never hold in our hands, and that is what is called reserves. Okay, reserves, bank reserves, and that's the money that sits in digital format, and the only entities that can trade that money, trade those rands, are the banks amongst themselves and between the banks and the central bank. It's the only place that that money exists. It's a kind of very uh, mysterious sort of concept, but that's what that, that's uh, that's the only place that money exists. Those are called reserves. Now, those reserves um, provide, if you like, the base of which other kinds of money are are created. Okay, and the, and the second kind of money is what we might call um, deposit money or ETF, ETF type money, uh, sorry, EFT, <laughs> EFT type money, okay, deposit money. And that's the money that you see in your bank accounts. That's the money that when you log on to your online banking, you see your money there, it's in, it's in digits. Um, it's not sitting in physical notes and it's not bank reserves, okay? And that is, that is also legally tenderable money, okay? When you pay someone, um, you don't give them banknotes you don't give them five rand coins when you pay them online you're actually sending um that sort of electronic uh money that that deposit money to them and you're actually uh, uh trading a claim that you have on the bank when that money is in the bank it's not in your it's not under your bed it's actually a claim that you have on your bank to be able to draw that money out and when you transfer money on an EFT, you're actually transferring that claim to another bank, to another person. Now, if that person that you're paying is has the same bank as you, so let's say it's Standard Bank, you bank with Standard Bank and you pay someone from Standard Bank, then all that happens is that that claim on Standard Bank changes hands. It moves from me to Dumo, okay? If Dumo banks with uh, Nedbank, then and I've banked with Standard Bank, then when I pay him that uh, that money, um, he gets a claim with Nedbank. But Nedbank need need to claim the underlying money from Standard Bank, right? And the money, the underlying money that they claim from Standard Bank is reserves. It's the reserve money that we never see. Only right. the banks trade that amongst themselves, right? So. So um, the banks exchange the reserves depending on how we are exchanging that EFT money. And then the final version of money is the money that we have in our wallets, the money that we draw out from the, from the bank machine when we're about to go for a, a night out on the town or when we want to pay someone in cash. That's the money that we have um, uh, in our wallets, and that's just basically called banknotes, notes and coin. That's probably the least um, it's the least circulating money. Um, most of the money, the bulk of the money is EFT money. Um, and then you've got, so you've got bank reserves, you've got the EFT stuff, and then you've got the cash and all that. The, 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 the top two, the EFT and the, and the bank notes would be called, I suppose, legal tender. Um, and the reserves are, are, I guess, legal tender in a way, but they only, they only operate as legal tender um, if you like, amongst the banks and, and between the banks and the central bank.
and 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 these reserves who's who's responsible for creating them yeah so the the only the only entity that can create reserves is the reserve bank and when it prints money whenever the reserve bank prints money it's creating reserves um it, it now this is quite technical it can also create eft money okay so when central banks print when they print money and they for example buy assets with that printed money uh, it depends who they're buying from i'm not going to get too technical here but basically if they buy assets directly from the banks okay which is what they are doing at the moment in this crisis if they buy assets directly from commercial banks, then all they're doing is printing reserves. They're printing reserves, which, uh, which is to say they don't physically print anything, guys. They're just creating digits on a computer. We just use the word print because it's a sort of legacy word from when we actually printed physical notes. Um, uh, and like what Zimbabwe did in, in its hyperinflation when it printed physical notes. So we talk about printing, but actually what they're doing is they're creating digits on a computer and they're crediting them to the bank's, um, to the bank's accounts, okay? And, and then the banks will sell, will, will, will hand over a certain asset to the central bank, like a government bond or any kind of asset that the central bank wants to buy. Okay, uh, so then the banks get more reserves, now, because of fractional reserve banking, because banks are allowed to lend out more than, than they hold in reserve, they can use their, their bigger reserves to now lend more and create more EFT money. Okay, That EFT money is created when banks lend. So the two sources, and, and, and where do the banks get the money from to lend? Partly they get it from reserves, partly they get it from deposits. But also, in part, they just create it out of nothing. Okay, they're able to create loans out of nothing. When a bank creates a loan for, say, your house or for your car, it actually has a license from the, the central bank and from the government to, to create legal tender money, EFT money, out of nothing. Okay, that's very, very important. And so, can they do that without any, any reserves or deposits? Can they just create a new loan without... Well, it's not, it's not riskless for banks. So what the banks do is they create the loans, but then they have to go and fund that, those loans uh, with extra reserves and with extra deposits and so on. But they can create loans up to a much bigger multiple of the number of reserves and deposits that they have. Obviously, when they create a loan, they create an asset and a liability out of thin air. They create a loan, which is an asset, and they create a liability, which is a deposit. Um, and it's and, and they're not um, because of the way banking works, and because there's competitive banking, it's not like they have an unlimited ability to create loans. They are constrained by capital requirements. They're constrained by market risk. They're constrained by deposits. Um, they are constrained. However, the central bank can print reserves. Um, lend them to the banks or buy assets from the banks and the banks get those reserves and that can give the banks a much more room to do lending and create EFT money out of thin air. Okay, When there's all this EFT money and you decide you want to draw it out the bank, then that's where the notes and coin come in. There's a, there's a factory in Midrand, it's the South African Mint, I think I, was, I believe it's still in Midrand, 
And they actually create the physical notes and coins that get shipped off to the banks that sit in the bank machines and sit in the vaults of the banks for, for people who want to draw physical money out the bank. So that's kind of where all the money comes from. Most of the money that's created, overwhelming majority of the money that's, that's printed, created out of thin air, isn't physically printed. It's actually computer digits. In the first instance, between the central bank and the banks through bank reserves, and in the second instance, when the banks make loans and create loans, they create digits in your bank account that become new money. Um, and so we have a system really that's uh, where money can be created first and foremost by the by the central bank and then by the banks themselves. So that's kind of where it all comes from. <laughs> sure. Just, it, it, it's, it's are, very... are, your brains, are your brains hurting yet, guys? <laughs> no. <laughs> for me... I'm not going to lie. That was a, protect, that was a lot uh, really technical for my, yeah. for my understanding. Uh, yeah. Oh, damn, Russell. But well, I also let, wanted let, to let, do... Let me, let me quickly try and... J- just to quickly say, I mean, if I had to break it down like as simply as possible, guys, I would say that um, the, the central bank money, the reserve money, that's kind of like the engine room. That's where the money first gets created. Um, the EFT money is, is uh, if you like, where the money gets used. That's the money that gets used practically in the economy. Um, the, the banks use the reserve money from the central bank to make sure that they are funded and to make sure that they are kind of liquid, if you like. And they use that. Think of it like the base of an inverted pyramid. Think of an inverted pyramid where it's got a small base and a wide top. Mm-hmm. The base of that pyramid is like the reserve money, and it's that money that the banks use to create their loans and to build a much bigger monetary system on top of that. It is very complicated. And I, w- I would point out to you that many people who, 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 who are uh, bankers or even economists and so on who, who listen to what I've just said uh, would disagree with me. Right, many would agree with me, but many would also disagree with me. So this is not a simple area, and it's an area that is very controversial and very academic. So, um, you know, we don't have to get too too technical on this, but, but but I think I think you guys get the picture. The, the simple story is this: that in a in a system, guys, where the government gets to decide <clears throat> what is legal tender and what is not, they can create a banking system that can create money out of nothing. And what that means is that they have the power to print unlimited amounts of money because you can make unlimited digits on a computer. And okay. so that's, but, that's okay, the important if, point I want to get across. If, if, you're, if, you're, um, if you are able to still print all this money out of thin air, wouldn't it, uh, it uh, in the case of Zimbabwe, where they printed this money, but it actually meant nothing. It was worth nothing. How is that the case? And how does that come about in which now you're printing money, but your inflation is rocketing up? What yeah. is that? Mm. Well, um, you know, your audience is, is, is intelligent and they know that if you increase the supply of something too much, it loses its value, right? Mm. Um, if, you, uh, if you have one chocolate, you know, it's it's really nice. It's it's tasty. If you have a uh, hundred chocolates, um, you you you'll get sick, and and you know <laughs> the value of it, uh, the value of the marginal chocolate 
um, will drop substantially. It'll be it'll be disgusting. It might even kill you if you have too many. Mm-hmm. So, so we all understand that there's value in scarcity. There's value in scarcity, and that's precisely what makes a good money. A good money is a scarce commodity. That is why gold is such a good money, right? Because you can't just create it out of nothing, or you can't just create it super easily, and therefore it'll lose its value. People need to be able to retain and hold and store their value in that commodity. If you do a, if you work really hard for a month, you do some really hard work, and then you store that value that you've just created, you get paid and you store that value in something, and then that value disappears, um, you've lost your value. So people, you've lost all that work that you did basically. So people want to store their value that they create in something durable and something scarce. And gold is one of those things. Um, do you know that the, the, the total amount of gold, guys, that's ever been mined in the history of, of gold mining is about the size of a cubic uh, like tennis court? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's, okay. Wow. It would, it, would pretty much, it would pretty much fit onto a tennis court. So sure, that's it. That's it. That's the that's all the gold that ever that's ever existed above ground. Okay. Wow. Wow. So now, so that's something that's really really scarce. Um, Bitcoin is really interesting because because of its because of its design because of its algorithm, and because it requires so much computing power to validate transactions. Um it is incredibly scarce and the algorithm uh, has been designed so that there will only be around about 21 million coins ever mined. So Bitcoin is a very interesting from a scarcity uh, perspective. So to your question about, sorry, are you guys hearing me all right? Yes. I'm hearing you. So to your question about what happened in Zimbabwe is it's a simple case of supply, of oversupply. Um, and this is this is an interesting point about money is that like we actually want to uh, to, to have quote unquote too much supply of all the good things of life we want because when we have when we have tons of supply prices come down and we actually have wealth that's actually how we have prosperity right mm. so so the, the, the first computers were basically unaffordable by the common man. The first computers could only be afforded by very wealthy governments. Um, now, uh, most middle-class people, if you like, can, can own a PC, can own a laptop. That's an amazing um, – and, and that's because we've figured out a way to increase the supply uh, of computers and increase the supply of computing power, Right. Um, money is the opposite. Money has, has the opposite characteristic. If we increase the supply of money, it just diminishes the value of the currency and therefore it diminishes its um, uh, utility as a medium of exchange and as a store of value. And so what Zimbabwe did was print ridiculous huge amounts of money because they got into trouble and they thought that the best way that they could afford things was to print money. The government ran into big financial trouble. And like governments often try to do, they wanted to, to obtain resources for themselves, but their tax base was, was broken. 
Mm. And no one, no one around the world wanted to lend to Robert Mugabe's government anymore. And so they decided to print money. And what they learned over the course of 10 years was that the more you print, the less valuable it becomes until it becomes worthless. And in that process, the economy collapses because what you're doing is you're destroying your medium of exchange. You're destroying the one thing that gives you the ability to make complex calculations in a complex economy and society. They destroyed that. And so their whole economy almost became like that simple island economy that, that me and Mpiyaki were on, you know, that, that island example I gave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when, when you destroy your currency, you almost turn your entire society into this like very simplistic island economy. That's, like, that's just the analogy that I'm using for what happens when, when they destroyed the, the Zimbabwe dollar. Um, and so that's, that's why hyperinflation, which is what happens when you print in, you know, uh, re- absurd amounts of money, when you have hyperinflation, it's really, really, really damaging to society. It actually breaks your society and it breaks um, your economy and your social fabric and it breaks families and it kills people. People die from the famine and the poverty that that creates. So that money printing was was very very devastating. Um, it's very interesting. I wanted to just ask a question on um, back to the cryptocurrency, right? Um, there was a the uh, you you mentioned that there's algorithms in place that keep um, the the currency scarce, right? Um, so you say that in Bitcoin they have those algorithms in place, but what about the other? types of um, cryptocurrency like ethereum and so forth aren't they aren't they at risk of um, someone just you know hacking some sort of system and then just creating ethereum out of thin air yeah look there's there's no i would say there's no risk-free anything in life right (laughs) um there's no risk there's no risk-free gold even because even though you can't print gold out of thin air um, there's a few risks to holding gold. Uh, one is that governments can confiscate gold. Now, they may not know about the gold that you hid um, you know, in the bottom of your, your attic or, your, or in your garden or something, or you buried it like under your house or something like that. They might not know about that gold. But they might, um, you know, a lot of people store their gold in vaults, in, in, in like um, secure large vaults. And um, the government could nationalize and confiscate those vaults under the threat of, uh, of death, you know, of the owners of those, or imprisonment of the owners of those vaults. So the government can confiscate your gold. Um, I mean, the other risk, I suppose, is that someone discovers just an enormous quantity of gold that's like, that no one ever knew about before. Um, or maybe the earth gets hit by some sort of gold meteorite that's got more gold than we've ever seen in our lives you know and and that would increase the supply of gold at least in a once-off fashion and it would be a risk to the value of gold those holding gold might see the value of that gold you know halve or or uh, or, or fall even more so there's no risk-free situation and i think i think the key with cryptocurrency is which cryptocurrency has a design system or, or a design algorithm should i say that um, makes it incredibly difficult to copy to make copies of that currency. That that makes it almost impossible to counterfeit or to increase the supply of that currency. 
Um, now, Bitcoin is probably the best and the most successful uh, example that we have. Ethereum, to my understanding, and you know, I'm not a major technical crypto guy, so so you know, just take this with some caution. But to my understanding, Ethereum is easier to to replicate. It is easier to increase the supply. Um, it's it's algorithms that uh, that dictate and determine the, the the money supply, if you like, of Ethereum um, are things that that are easier to change and easier to manipulate by a central actor than Bitcoin. Um, Bitcoin is very hard to attack. It's very, very decentralized, and it has just this huge um, security network of, of nodes um, and of computing power that essentially protect the Bitcoin network and protect Bitcoin itself. So every cryptocurrency has a different level of risk. Bitcoin has its own risks, it, it, less around that you can do a 51% um, sort of attack I think maybe more just around how Bitcoin can be regulated by governments in terms of how you are able to use it, how you're able to own it, how you're able to spend it. Governments can frustrate uh, the Bitcoin economy by banning the use of Bitcoin. Um, you can still hide your Bitcoin from the government, um, but it, it can be difficult to use if government makes makes your life difficult in that respect. So everything has its risks. Uh, there's no question about it. Uh, but I think what you got with something like Bitcoin is a very, very stable uh, supply, um, very hard to increase the supply through some sort of cyber attack. And that's why people consider Bitcoin to be, you know, the king of cryptocurrency. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, I think that's a very good uh, explanation of what Bitcoin does and uh, crypto as well. And my final, the final question from me, Russell, was uh, around, um, like you were talking about Zimbabwe and how they increased the money supply and I wanted to switch it to South Africa and sort of get you to explain for us how the repo rates as well as uh, asset purchases by the Reserve Bank can be used to increase or decrease the money supply. Okay, so I'll, this is actually something I can keep quite simple. I think that if you... So, so the repo rate is is simply the rate at which banks borrow money from the central bank, okay? Um, it's and the way that they borrow money from the central bank is that they they use or they pledge collateral to the central bank. So collateral is anything that you pledge um, to back a loan. So if the bank wants to give you a loan, um, let's say for your business. It might require that um, it takes some of your business assets as collateral. Okay, that gives it some security in its loan. Um, does that does that make sense? Sure, sure. Yes, okay. that makes sense. Yes, pretty, yes, yes. Pretty pretty simple concept. So so that's the same way that the central bank lends to the banks. The central bank creates reserves out of thin air, creates them out of nothing because of it. It's got a legislative constitutional privilege to be able to do that okay <laughs> that's one of the ways in which we have an unjust money monetary system because we have a monopoly um, protected by legislation the central bank able to able to print money they create the money they lend it to the banks and the banks in return pledge collateral in the form of government bonds okay government bonds are assets because the government will pay you back uh, you think you hope um, 
And so those assets are pledged in return for loans. Now, the rate at which those loans are offered from the central bank to the banks is um, the repo rate. So if you make the repo rate very, very low, it means that it's relatively inexpensive for the banks to borrow money from the central bank. Uh, to borrow reserves from the central bank, and those reserves give them the funding that they require to make new loans. And remember, when they make new loans, they create new EFT, or what we might call deposit money. Okay, so making the repo rate low can can cause the banks to lend more money, and when the banks lend more money, that's how the money supply. Um, in our bank accounts and the and, and the money the EFT money supply that's how it can increase. So that's the first thing. When when the bank when the other thing the central bank can do is it can conduct quantitative easing, which is which is when it buys assets from the banks. So instead of lending money to the banks and the bond is a collateral uh, instrument, instead it will buy those bonds from the banks and pay them reserve money. Um, and that's a, that's, that, that can potentially be a permanent transaction. Um, and so the banks, what the banks do is they get rid of government bonds. Um, and now sometimes government bonds can be very, very dodgy assets, very bad assets because the government might be about to default, right? So what the what the central bank is really doing, and it's happening now in South Africa, it's buying bonds from the banks, it's taking off dodgy assets off their balance sheet, and it's giving them reserve money that they created out of thin air, which is a powerful asset on your balance sheet, at least as long as the rand uh, you know holds value. But it's but but so um, so they're actually it's a form of bailing out the banks. It's a form of bailing out the banks. And then the final comment on this is that if the Reserve Bank does quantitative easing with non-banks, okay, and this is technical, guys can go and research this, but if it does QE with non-banks, then it also creates, at the same time that it creates reserves, it also creates EFT money. Okay, it's a, it's a technical point that's very hard to explain to your listeners, but um, to, let's just take it for now that that's the case, that when they do quantitative easing with with entities that are not banks, they're actually directly increasing the EFT money supply. And it's when they do that that they can really start to create real inflation um, in the system. And then the final way that they can that they can print money is printing actual notes and coins. Um, and that's what they did in Zimbabwe to a huge degree. They printed uh, huge amounts of notes and coins and we got these uh, insane numbers like 100 trillion Zim dollars yeah. Um, and people, what, what people don't realize is that that's, that 100 trillion number, um, that was already after they had taken about eight zeros off the, the currency. Um, sure. so, so 100 trillion plus eight zeros is like some crazy, crazy number. That, that's really yeah, how, that's they, how, they devalued, uh, how they devalued their currency. <laughs> Okay, so I want you to know, um, Raz, uh, coming back to also South Africa, you recently, um, well, obviously with the announcement of the president of, you know, this stimulus package of 500 billion or even more, you subsequently said that what this government needs is a, is, is a recession of its own. 
in which it's yeah. not in any way trying to uh, spend money in the economy, but it's actually just playing referee for, to to an extent. Correct me if I'm wrong. And why is that? Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that we need we need governments with with skin in the game. And if you want to force the whole private sector to lock down, um, you've got to then, and, and you then want to bail them out, you've got to do it from your own from your own finances. So what we should what we should be seeing in these policies, which we're not, is dramatic dramatic reductions in government spending. Government was the entity that decided on a lockdown. And it and it is enforcing it and forcing us to be in lockdown and basically in a tyrannical way telling companies that they may not produce for their livelihood. It's it's government's responsibility, therefore, to take. Um, like I would say that the cabinet, I mean, shouldn't be taking thirty percent pay cuts. It should be taking one hundred percent pay cuts um, mm-hmm. for for the duration of of lockdown. Um, and. Uh, large segments of government spending should be cut, particularly in the procurement budget, which goes to a lot of corrupt uh, tenderpreneurs. That should all be getting slashed uh, dramatically, and those funds should be getting passed over, handed over back to the taxpaying companies that funded that in the first place. That is actually the way to to stimulate the economy, and that is the way to protect people um, through this lockdown, the government recession is is really just that. It's government finally um, actually having proper budget cuts. In a recession, you have budget cuts. Um, for the last 40, 50 years, um, our government basically hasn't had meaningful recessions. Well, the private sector's had about eight meaningful big recessions over that time. And so I'm just saying it's time for more equality in recessions. Uh, the private sector's had a lot of recessions. Government's had basically zero uh, it's time for politicians to show they've got skin in the game. Uh, now, of course, I don't believe that they're going to listen to me because <laughs> because yeah, they're, uh, they're 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 greedy yeah, politicians. They're yeah, but but we should be putting uh, this message out to the public. We should be putting the message out to ordinary people, saying it's time for a government recession, and that should be a message. Um, we've had enough private sector recessions. It's time for a government recession. And that is, that is, I think, a very important message. And it would show you that, that the minute government uh, believed that it would have to have a recession, it would end the lockdown immediately. Okay, It's, it's only because they don't have to suffer the full consequences, particularly the, the, the top decision makers in government. They don't believe that they have to suffer the full consequences of this. And, um, and so they're taking a decision that... that you know, very, very uh, badly affects many, many th- millions of people, um, and they're showing that they've got no skin in the game, and and they're and they're out of touch with with so much of, of like real real life on the ground. So um, yeah, we need we need governments to fall dramatically in size. Um, South African government could halve easily, easily halve in size. And still be able to perform all the basic functions of government uh, absolutely fine. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's something that I. It's it's also a view that I also share as well. That um, government is way too large, just way too large. If you look at the public sector wage bill, yeah, it's just it's incredible, it's and they need to cut that. 
And if yeah. I, if I could just if I could just add something quickly, guys, like mm-hmm. someone might listen, someone might listen to that and say, "Oh, but what about all the all the poor people on social grants and all these sorts of things?" Now, let's leave aside for a second the problem that you the, the lasting long term problems that you actually create uh, with a welfare state, right? The lasting dependency problems that you create. Let's grant for now that that paying social grants to the most vulnerable South Africans is a good thing. Okay. And most people agree with that, I think. It's mm-hmm. it's you know, politically most people agree with that. Mm. Now, you can have a government recession and you can still pay those people. In fact, you can increase social grants. You can you can increase social grants and still have a huge government recession. And the way you do that is that there's a whole lot of people in government who are who are capable of, of fending for themselves in the private sector they have earned loads of money from government okay they're fairly well educated they're fairly well connected they should be let go and they need to get out and earn their own living like the rest of us right mm-hmm. um, then you've got all your tenderpreneurs all your corrupt um, providers of services to to government right those guys can obviously be let go with no um, stain on your conscience because there's been so much thieving that's been going on in that sector, okay? And the final main spending sectors that you have are, are basically like basic necessary government services, okay? And, and welfare payments to, to, the, to the most vulnerable people. And you can do all that at a way, way, way lower budget um, than, than the government currently has. So it's... it's it's actually false to say that a government recession is bad for the poor. A government recession can be the best thing that that has ever happened to the poor of South Africa in 26 years, and um, and I think that uh, that's what people need to start thinking about and talking about. That that the class the class war in South Africa, it's not a race war and it's not between rich and poor. It's between a class of of um, bureaucrats who want to live, who want to live off the rest of us, right? And then a mm-hmm. class of productive people who are trying to actually make the best of it. That is the real class warfare in South Africa. Yeah, definitely. And lastly, for my uh, from my final question is, you, <clears throat> we can also assist that by um, um, implementing the free market system. And I remember on the one documentary, you spoke about how powerful it is when you have a free market system because the individual is the locus of their own decision making they know what best to do so yeah. they can actually supply produce as well as um create value in the, in in the economy so just elaborate on that and how powerful it is to do it after going to a government recession yeah well i mean exactly and what you've really raised is you brought us back to hayek um, and to Mises, um, who who understand that knowledge um, and decision making needs to happen at a decentralized level. It needs to happen at the individual level, at the family level, at the business level. Um, but the minute you you take it up to the government and the state level, the government doesn't know what your desires are. The government doesn't know what your dreams are. They don't know what your needs are. Um, they don't know how you can best use your money, um, and so and so a system of freedom that allows people to pursue their dreams, their passions, their skills, 
um, to learn. You know, this is why the minimum wage is so is so disastrous because you need to give people the right to work for nothing. You know, you need to give people the right to work for very, very little or sometimes even to pay their employer to work. Now, that sounds ridiculous, right? But it's totally true. Someone who's starting out their career, many, many people who start out their career work for free. They work as an apprentice. They learn. Um, you need that freedom to be able to work for little, to grow your skills, to up your skills, and then you get better. Then you can start to command a higher wage in the marketplace. Um, uh, these decisions simply cannot be centrally planned uh, by anyone other than individuals, households, businesses. Um, and that has got to be the locus of decision-making. Um, anyone who's ever relied on the government to make a decision for them has always been disappointed. It's, it's exceedingly rare that the government will make the best decision for, for you personally. Exceedingly rare. Um, and, and if you let the government make decisions for you that benefit you, you must remember that you also then have to pay the government uh, they're due. You have to pay them what you now owe them. When the gov if you want the government to help you, it's going to take its pound of flesh from you. It's going to remove your freedoms. It's going to increase your taxes. It's going to do all these sorts of things. So people have to start realizing that the best decision maker in their lives is themselves uh, with the help of their friends, their families, their communities. And once we start realizing that, we start realizing that a free system is far, far, far better than a, than a socialist, centrally planned system. Thank you. Yeah, oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had to sit. Yeah, it's like, you, you might as well just end the podcast right now. Just play the <laughs> outro music and that's it. Like, that's it. It's, it's done. Yeah, it's, it's done. Was that, was, that, was that my drop the mic moment? Yeah, that, that was it. Yeah. That yeah, was it right I, there. I saw. <laughs> This is where you just play the credits, man. You play the credits and it's done. Like there it is, man. Mm. Nothing more. Like no that, post yeah. post guys, it's, it's like been that. a it's been a real pleasure to to be on with you yeah. you guys, man. Really great questions. Amazingly good questions. And you've been really, really gracious hosts. So thank you so much, man. Uh, no, it's my it's my mm. pleasure. It's my pleasure. Yeah, if if, if only right, Oki yeah. was here, man, but yeah, yeah. Man, would have thank had you for yeah. yeah thank you for you know yeah. putting knowledge on us like you know giving <laughs> us and the listeners some knowledge and some things to ponder and research about i mean the whole monetary system we put it uh, quite technically but you've also been able to give us pointers in which we can still go further and research on so yeah, yeah. thank you for that guys what i'm gonna do what, guys, quickly, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'll, uh, I'll mail um, uh, Dumo um, after this uh, with, some, with some links to some really good reading on the stuff that I spoke about. And you can put those in the show notes page um, and link, that, link your listeners to some of these great resources. Yeah. Oh, definitely, yes. Yeah, definitely. Gotta, yeah, we're going we're to put it under um, a descriptive uh, on YouTube and just to let people know as to where they can actually find more information pertaining to what you've just spoken about. Uh, but just hope that, you know, more and more people, like you said, uh, we put these ideas out to the public rather than government because government is not incentivized to actually implement these things. But the public is. 
And in these times, I think that this is the these are the type of ideas that I really needed to unlock the potential of South Africa as well as Africa in general. So thank you, Russell. That's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Uh, Dumo, um, I think we can end the show. Uh, you can tell the listeners, subscribers, news listeners where they can catch us. Yeah, man. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you can go manpatreon.com. You'll find all of the stuff there, the podcast, everything like that, and how to support us. Just go there and, yeah, and you'll find everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any lasting words that you want to say? Yeah, just, uh, a big thank you to Russell. This was a great show, very educational for me personally, and I hope for people as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you, Russell. Uh, from my side, as well, I would say thank you to uh, to all the listeners as well, the new listeners, the new subscribers, the new citizens. We thank you so much. And uh, yeah, we're going to be back again next week um, for another episode and uh well this coming saturday this weekend for another episode and uh, we hope that you're there to listen as well so yeah thank you guys yeah okay all right man okay see you guys next time cheers everybody peace okay <laughs>